Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to continue now um, speaking on the theme that we've covered for approximately six or seven months now, and this is actually session 31 in the now dealings on the subject of kingdom economics. It's actually now part five or six, I think, in the subsection on sowing and reaping, and um, it's really, really been phenomenal time of enlightenment for me, as I'm sure it has been for you. And remember, we are bringing order to our financial world, and we are making certain that what we do financially is acceptable to the Lord, simply because finances depict uh, our lives. If there's anything that is an accurate reflection of you, it's how you handle your money. The Bible says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So it's easy to locate the heart, simply track finances or track stewardship over finances, and you will see where priority of the person lies. And so uh, we've been uh, speaking in recent weeks of why is it that some don't enter into harvest? And we said reasons like, well, for some, it's simply because they do not sow. If you do not sow, you cannot reap. You, will, you only reap that which you sow. So some haven't entered into the whole culture of sowing. Sowing mustn't be an event. It mustn't be an event-driven thing. It must be part and parcel of who you are. You are a seed by definition. As a son of God, you are a seed. Christ is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3 teaches. So, and we are seeds. Parable in Matthew 13, remember? The last parable in that long chapter says that the, the farmer sowed seeds, but the enemy came and sowed tears. They grew up together. The farmer wanted to separate, but the owner of the, of the vineyard said, no, leave it until harvest time. So at harvest time, the, the weeds which Jesus interpreted are sons of this world. But he said the seeds, that the good seed, he said, are sons of the, of the kingdom. So if you are a son, you should embody the whole seed principle. Jesus said, unless a seed, referring to himself again, the seed is the person, said, unless a seed falls and dies to the ground, it abides alone. But if it falls and dies, it bears forth fruit in much abundance. So, when I sow, financial seed, what I do external from me is only a reflection of me as a seed. Okay? So I have become the thing before I do the thing. Me doing the thing, sowing money, is only a reflection of everything I I am. So Isaac willingly laid his life to be sacrificed on the altar by his father, Abraham. Okay? So, literally, he was depicting what Jesus would do years later. No man takes my life, Jesus said. 
I lay it down willingly. Abraham did not force Isaac to be offered. He willingly laid and allowed, he permitted himself to be tied on the altar and to be sacrificed by his dad. The revelation of Jehovah Jireh that God gave to Abraham at that point was also given to Isaac because he was right there listening to how God is revealing himself to his father as a God of provision. But who, that's not just Abraham's revelation, that's Isaac's too. Right? So when this man, now the boy grows up to be a man, Isaac, and when his father is even long dead, and now he is alive, he never ever had a problem with provision. Isaac never ever had a problem with provision, with his needs being met. Why? Very early in his walk, under the tutelage of his father, learning to operate in the culture of obedience unto death, total commitment, he accessed the revelation, God will provide. God will provide. Now, when he's a man in a time of famine, a desert time, the Bible says, he sows what? He sows seed when it's inopportune to do so. It's an inopportune time to sow seed. No farmer sows seed in famine. The seed dies. Right? But the Bible says he does it, and in the same year he reaps 100 fold. So he's sowing seed because in his life, he knew what it is to become seed. He knew what it is to embody that seed principle. Be totally obedient to God. So this is where I'm going to, and you'll see it come from the sermon today. Everything you do in terms of financial offerings or stewardship must be a total reflection of everything you are for the seed to have its fullest effect when sown. Some don't enter into harvest. Because there's a separation between who you are and what is sown. And what you sow is not thoroughly reflective of everything you are. Okay? What is sown is not thoroughly reflective of everything you are. I'll get to explore and explain that a bit more fully in a moment. Why do some reap more than others, we said there? Yes, secondly, we said, well, some sow more than others, therefore they reap more than others. You sow in direct proportion to what, sorry, you reap in direct proportion to what you have sown. So if you want to reap more, sow more. And then we also said, uh, between seed time and harvest time, do not become discouraged or grow weary. That's what the Bible references it. References it as such. Seed time. Harvest time. There's a gap or an absence of harvest after you've sown. In that waiting period, do not lose heart. Galatians 6 or Galatians 5, I'm quoting. And do not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you do not faint. So don't faint after you've sown. The word faint means to grow weary, to lose courage. But keep your, keep your, keep your faith up and keep believing in the Lord. Okay, that God will surely Bring an attendant harvest with everything that you've sown. We also said thirdly, some don't enter into the fullness of harvest because they lack faith. Okay? Every act of obedience is an expression of faith. The Bible says, faith without works is, faith without works is dead. So works prove the presence of faith. Not so? Come on, yes? So works, if the Bible says, your faith without accompanying works is dead faith. So works are 
tacit proof that faith is at work. Works is obedience. What you do evidences the fact that you do have, you do have, you do have faith. Uh, I want to encourage you. Sometimes you must even obey the principle of sowing by faith. When you give financially, you do it in faith. It says, of Abel, by faith he offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than, than pain. But having offered, maintain faith. Maintain. Part of faith is not just obedience. It's a firm uh, persuasion. The Greek is pistis. A firm position of absolute unswerving confidence in God. Okay? So do not let up, but hold faith. And remember, the Lord hijacked that message two or three weeks ago. We spoke at length about this. And uh, the Lord took us on a journey of how that He will not forget what was sown. The Bible in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6 says, God is not unjust to forget your labor of love in terms of how you ministered and still do and still do minister. And I don't want to go to all the case studies there, but please find on the website three powerful exhortations to you to indicate that God does not God, God does not forget. Then last week's session was extremely important. We decoded Haggai chapter 1. And in that chapter, you, you, you read words like this. God says to the nation, you've so much, but you've read, you've read little. So why is it that some people sow and either do not come into harvest or do not come into the fullness of the harvest as your seed potentiates? Your seed has potential, right? Your seed has an inherent capacity. If you sow the seed, there should be an associated or commensurate harvest with the potential locked up in the seed. But if the harvest comes to less than the innate potential within the seed, something is wrong, right? So Haggai says, so much, you should read much, but you so much, but it comes to little. And in context, God says to Israel, because of, and I'm paraphrasing, because of your attitude to my temple, because of your position towards my house. And in Haggai, God says to the people, this people say, the time has not come to build the house of the Lord, and you dwell and you focus on your panel houses, and my temple lies desolate, declares the Lord. Okay? My temple lies in ruins. So it's very important for us, listen carefully, Isaac, in Genesis 28, after he had the revelation of the ladder with angels ascending and descending. Remember? And those angels, I have another teaching, where we prove those angels are messengers, earthly men or spiritual leaders or fathers positioned over your life that have capacity to access God, bring revelation or doctrine as it were, teachings down to you. And so he saw this wonderful vision and he woke up from deep sleep and what did he call the name of that place? Betha, which means what? It was a house of God. So house of God, he called the name of that place Bethel. And he got up and he said these words, surely the presence of the Lord is here and I did not know it. Then the Bible says, he named the place, put it out, named the place Bethel, and he said these words, of everything God gives me, surely I will give him back a tenth. So there was a vow to tithe when? After the revelation of the house. 
tithing, his vow in his commitment to tithe was born out of an awareness, a revelation of what the house of God meant to him. You never tithe because someone got a gun to you. You never tithe or give offerings or give uh, free will offerings to kingdom projects because someone coerces you or manipulates you into doing that. When you realize what the house or the church of God represents, a revelation of that will unlock your commitment to give financially into that. Yeah? When I understand presently the profundity of the church of God, the seriousness of it, its centrality to human life, um, its, its pivotal placement within the purposes of God globally, the fact that my life was a mess without it, that Jesus Christ by his blood rescued me from a life of sin and he put me into a family called his church, his body. He, he, he put me into a, a, a community of saints, a house of God or the family of God, led by a spiritual leader to whom I can submit. According to Hebrews 13, they are over me in the Lord and will give an account for my soul. And I realize, wow, this is awesome. I have no problems taking out my wallet or giving 10% of all of my earnings and even more to this endeavor. Okay? Because it reflects my heart of gratitude. A revelation of the house. What the house means to you will unlock your wallet. To put it plainly. Yeah? Don't, I always say, don't try to convince someone to give outside of first unveiling to them what the house of God represents. Jacob committed to, to give after he had a revelation of the, of the house of God. So God says to Haggai, the people in Haggai, consider your ways. You're focusing on your panel, private initiatives, while my corporate uh, temple lies in ruin. And I challenge you, and I will continue to challenge you, especially next year, guys. Listen carefully. Be committed to this local church. To which, in which God has placed you. Love the people. Don't just be affiliated as saying, tick, I'm a member of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Tick. But become part of the household. Love the family. Get to know brothers, uh, brothers and, and, and sisters. Right? Uh, uh, build, that is my idea of building the local house. So, but, and, and submit to the oversight that God has put over you, all part of your faithfulness to the house. But more than that, this house now is becoming part of a corporate process because I too am submitted to one that is over me in terms of the personal pastor, Farmo. I do. And he has a mandate. He has a global house. So I will not so much in all my endeavors prioritize this panel house from a corporate level and not neglect that corporate temple. You, in your private world, must not so much prioritize your private in initiatives, etc., to the point where you disregard or neglect the church of the living God. But collectively, we as a church, we are now going to focus on the building of the corporate temple. And I told you last week, whereby we're going to be gathering at least twice a term next year with other churches and denominations in the city. We had the first meeting last year. It was glorious for those of you. And let me just say this. Haggai will apply to us then. 
I'm saying to you, the key to accentuate the sowing and reaping principle is an attitude to the house. You can practice the principle and God says to you, so much but you reap little. You can say to God, like the people say, but why God? Then God says, because of my house. You see, the principle works. But for the Son of God, when you're in the kingdom, the principle works more potently, more fully, when it's accompanied by the right attitudes, motivations, and heart dispositions towards the, the house of the Lord. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but do you want to experience every the fullest harvest of every seed sown? I want your sowing and reaping is never separate or divorced from your attitude to the house. It must be reflective, like Jacob did. He said, if this is the house, here's my money. Right? If this is the house, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking plainly. I can quote the scripture to you, but I'm making it contemporary. Right? He said, if this is the house, surely God, whatever you give to me, I will surely give it to you. Amen? Now, I proved this to you last week. Listen carefully. Why could not Balaam curse Israel? Why? Two reasons. Three attempts at the curse failed. Balak, king of Moab, hired him, cursed the people because they are threat. They're going to lick us up, he said. They are threat to us. He took this prophet of God on three different um, elevations, three altitudes. The one, the next one, always higher than the previous one, from which you could have an aerial view. Of Israel as they journeyed and camped. So when he looks from at this, this high place and ah, he will open his mouth to curse and what comes out? Blessing. Why? And he says, I can't curse what God has already what God has already blessed. The last time in Numbers 24 is the great key. The Bible says, and he went up the final third time and when he saw Israel camped by tribes. Camped Everyone say by tribes. Camp by tribes. The tribal configuration of the nation of Israel. There were 12 of them. 12 tribes. Each, each tribe was made up of, a, of various clans. And each clan various families. In each of the 12 tribes. So when he was up there, what did he see? Order. Structure. Arrangement. There was no loose journey. There was, there was no a group of a couple of hundred thousand Israelites just moving in a desert. What Balaam saw was these people are well structured, well ordered, but they were tribal. Everyone say tribal. That implies they were family conscious. They were placed in a household and that was their immunity. When he saw that, he could not curse what God has, what God has, what God has blessed. I also said to you this step, he also saw the cross because at the camping, they would erect the tabernacle and each, uh, there were three tribes camped at each side of the four sides of the tabernacle. Picture the, the four sides of the tabernacle. Three, 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 three. If you have an aerial view of that, what do you see? You see the cross. So he, he even back there in the Old Testament, encoded was the fact that we are under the blood of the Lamb. The cross of Christ broke, protects us. And he tried to curse what God has blessed, but he could not. Amen? Then I spoke to you, and I picked up the way, the reason why God led us there was 
I picked up in the spirit that there were accusing words raised up against the church. Some I had evidence of, but the Lord alerted me to a whole lot of others. And Balaam wasn't part of my message last week. It was an intervention of the Lord the night before as I meditated. And I want to say this to you. No hex will work against you. No one, no negative speech can work against you. And on Wednesday evening here in the prayer meeting, we had a powerful time again rehearsing what is the right responses to accusing words. And we took up authority in the realm of the Spirit and we prayed against them. You can pray against them. Amen. So, you know, I was thinking while I was, I'm trying to, I so apologize for not sending notes in a long while. Right? My notes are mostly done. Mostly done. But they are not as I would like them. Simply because of time and uh, uh, just time and travel and leave me with very little time to sit and put it in a format that is shareable. You know? So while I was typing this out, while I was editing the message from last week's Sunday, because I said certain things by inspiration on Sunday, I didn't have, have it in my notes, so I wanted to capture it here. And the Lord reminded me of Solomon. Remember Solomon? Right? Now, remember, wasn't he the wisest man who ever lived in his day? Wasn't he the richest man in his day? Yes? Solomon had two things going for him. Extremely wise and extremely wealthy. It's a very, very good combination. Okay? So the Queen of Sheba came from Africa to see his wisdom. <coughs> First Kings chapter 10 and verse 7. She said, Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes have seen it. Now behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and in prosperity the report which I heard. So she heard of his wealth. She heard of his wisdom. She came to see both. Came to see wisdom, not hear. Came to see wisdom. And she came to see wealth. So you exceed in, in wisdom and in prosperity the report which I heard. She inspected him. She did an appraisal of him, his kingdom, his order, his structure. She wants keys as to wisest man, so wealthy, wisest man, full of wisdom. We know the source of Solomon's wisdom was God, not so. Remember God asked him, ask me whatever you will. When his father David died, remember? God came to him and said, ask me what you will. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom, you have not asked for wealth, for long life, neither the life of your enemies. I will give you wisdom, and behold, I will give you all that you have not asked for. So what's the key? Wisdom is the key to everything else. In all you're getting, get, get wisdom. So Solomon asks the source of his wisdom was God. Now, do you know you can ask God for something and he can graciously bestow it upon you, but if you do not if you do not observe certain principles, what is given can be lost. And Solomon is evidence of this because at the end of his life, he didn't observe certain very clear commandments that all kings should observe, and his, his decline started to, to go down. But early days, in his seeking after the Lord, he was really blessed of the Lord. And so she inspected him thoroughly. And if you look in chapter 10, 1 Kings, verses 4 to 5, 
when the queen of Sheba perceived the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he built. Now the house that is referred to here is not the house of God. It's his panel house, so to speak, if you bring the Haggai principle into play. It's his private dwelling. Right? Next, verse 5. So she's looking at everything. She's perceiving his wisdom, the house that he bought. The food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters, and the attire, his cup bearers, his, and his stairway by which he went up to where? To the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit left in him. Now the body without the spirit is dead. This girl almost died. When the Bible says there was no more, something took her breath away. <gasps> almost oh, fainted. What did she see that amazed her? Yes, it was his structure, waiters at the table, the order, the regiment. But when she saw that there is a stairway from the house he built to the house of the Lord, she was thoroughly amazed that this king of wealth and wisdom has connected his private house to the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord was positioned above his house. It wasn't a stairway down, it was an ascent, a stairway up. You must prioritize the house of the Lord. Come on, tell someone, prioritize the house. And by this, I don't mean just coming to meetings and being faithful. Yes, it involves that. But buying into the vision of the house Buying into what is the purpose in your heart, Randolph. Uh, what is your vision for the nations? What must we do? Can we put our shoulders to the plow? What can I do to make your hands lighter? What purpose can we push? It's an ascent to the house of the Lord. I pray as wealthy and as wise as your private houses are, that you never ever lose the connection to the house of the Lord. It's always a stairway up. For me to stairway up to the to the house of the Lord. Okay? That I believe the stairway linking his private house to the house of the Lord was the kernel reason for the sustained success of Solomon until the day he started to flout spiritual principles attendant with that house and his decline started so rapidly. Amen. Come on, you're going to prioritize the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. Prioritize the house of the Lord. Please, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Why wasn't there no one feeble amongst Israel when they journeyed in the wilderness from Egypt to Israel? Why? It says because they were amongst the tribes. Right? Two references here. We did this last week. Just to, just to give these to you. Psalm 105 verse 37. And Deuteronomy 29 verse 5. Okay? Amongst the tribes. Make certain that you are amongst the tribes. So I'm, I'm saying all of this to again reiterate the point. So you must. So you must. But so. And reap you will. When you sow with the right attitude to the house of God, sowing with the wrong attitude to the house of God will render what you sow not coming to its full potential in a harvest. You will always reap, but 
He tells that Haggai, you've so much but reaped little. We want to reap as much as the full possibilities that there is to reap. Amen. So I pray that your harvest will be full in every respect. Amen. I pray your harvest will be full in every respect. Now, okay, the next point, the next reason why um, there is not the, the realization of full harvest would be dishonor for leadership. Dishonor for leadership. Okay. Dishonor for spiritual leadership. Dishonor for spiritual fathering. Dishonor for your pastor. Dishonor for the one who has um, responsibility over your soul. Now, Psalm 118, verse 24 says the following. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be, and be glad in it. Verse 25. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, Lord. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. How many of you have prayed this prayer? Me many times. Okay. Send prosperity, I add now. Then I put the exclamation mark. Lord, I need a breakthrough now. Do send pro. This is the day that the Lord has made. Lord, save. We beseech you, O Lord. Do send prosperity. So it's biblical to pray for prosperity. The psalmist did it here. Do send prosperity. But in the next verse, don't stop reading. In the next verse it says, Blessed is he, or the one who comes in the name of the, of the Lord, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, where is this first portion of verse 26 quoted? Where? In the New Testament, not so? Jesus, when Jesus looked at Jerusalem to kill the prophets, stole those who were sent to him. Remember he said, how I long to gather you like a hen would gather chicks under his wings, but you would not. I wanted to, but you would not. You wouldn't have it. See now, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Literally a playground of demons in the Greek. Right? Your house is ransacked. Your spiritual house is left to you desolate. Right? Then he says, um, you will not see my face again. Until you say, blessed, says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, scripture must interpret. That's a very thorough hermeneutical principle. So, Jesus said at one time in the Gospels, if you receive whomever I send in my name. Everyone say in my name. If you receive whomever I send in my name, you have received me. So, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is not only a reference to Christ himself, but is also a reference to anyone that he will send because he is sending those people in his name as his representation. Okay? So, the plight of Jerusalem, and they really felt this in AD 70 when the city was thoroughly destroyed. Okay? Um, your house is left to you ransacked, desolate, because you did not receive the one who came to you. Now, here's the principle. 
Your economy is always ransacked. Your prosperity is always affected when you do not have the proper attitude of respect, honor, and reception for the one to whom God has sent to your life to speak the word of God to you. Contextually, in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be, be glad in it. We beseech you, Lord. We beseech you, do so. Do send prosperity. Next verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Principle is this. You cannot pray, do send prosperity, without simultaneously saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To seek prosperity by your sowing and reaping, outside of the correct attitude of respect and honor for the one God has sent to you, is to result in desolation. Okay? I really want to encourage the church. You know, I know many contexts which some of them are doctrinally off. I love them. I go to some of their meetings, even pastors' forums. And we don't agree on anything, but on everything, but on the essentials we do, like salvation, the Godhead, etc. Um, and there may be some peripherals to which we, are, we don't all on the same page. But I love the brothers. We're the body of Christ after all. So I love the brothers. Right? I really love them. And some of those contexts don't hold to some of the precious truths and doctrines we do. Yet I have seen on the principle of honor, they are extremely strong. I have seen places where honor is so strong in a weak doctrinal context, but the principle of honor is so strong and the blessing of God is abounding in people who have the correct attitude towards their leaders. I want to encourage you. This is a great key. That's a great key. Uh, I keep saying this to you. I don't entertain one negative thought towards my spiritual parents in Christ. Uh, I, I've trained myself by now. I don't go there. I tell my mind, you don't go there. That's one line you never cross. You want to live in dishonor to the one sent to you in the name of the Lord. You are inviting desolation. I don't entertain negative speech. It, it, it will not happen. I say that you, I tell my soul, you will not. Amen? You've got to come to that place. I, I want to encourage you. I'm giving you keys this morning. Honor is a great key. Right? Jesus said, or, or the, uh, Paul said, honor your father and mother in the Lord. Now, that refers to biological and spiritual parents. Why do I know it refers to spiritual parentage as well? Because Paul says to Timothy, uh, to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, you have many teachers, but how be it you do not have many fathers? How be it, he says, I have become your father in the Lord. Ephesians 6 says, honor your father and mother in the Lord. So if scripture is to interpret scripture, it could have reference to spiritual parentage as well. What is the promise? Just put the verse up. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 1 and 2. Excuse me. Are you all fine? Yes. And I'm racing along. I want to get to a point, but I need to discover a few of these basics. Obey your parents in the Lord. Well, this is, this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with, with promise, right? So that it might be well with you and that you might live a long time in the earth. 
Tell someone honor is a seed. Honor is a seed. So if all seeds have fruit or harvest, what is the harvest for honor? If honor is the seed, what's the harvest? There's a right thing. Number one, go very well with you. Things will go well with you. And secondly, you have the biblical right to trust God to live a long time. Put honor in place. Put honor in place towards natural parents. And I, I encouraged you with this before. Uh, honor your natural parents, honor your spiritual parents. And let me just say this how is honor most adequately expressed? Multiple ways. And we'll talk about that more next year. But obedience to words is the greatest expression of honor. Obedience. Obedience. What does Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10 say? Honor the Lord with your substance, with the first fruit of your increase or your wealth. Honor the Lord from your wealth with the first fruit, with the first of your produce. Just put the new King James, uh, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruit of your increase. So, just watch. When I do, for example, when I give a first fruit offering to my spiritual father in Christ, what is the motivation for the application of it? The motivation is honor. So watch. It is possible in God to engage an act without the correct motivating attitude. So that when you engage the act, the attendant divine blessing is not there. Because while you did it, you did not do it as an expression for the very thing for which it was established. So if I give first fruits, an EFT or whichever, to the Lord and He's representing in my Father who God has put over my life, honor drives the act. If you take the honor and I still engage the act, what I did, I cannot go to God and say, I am so unobeyed, but how come? God will say, but the very thing was designed to honor. If the principle of honor is not present, it cancels the attendant blessing associated with the act. Okay? Because its whole functionality was designed to express it as itself an expression of, of honor. So when I do it, I often say this to you, and I know I sound repetitive, but I need to ingrain this into you. I pause. If it's an EFT, I pause. If I'm in physical, if I do it manually, and I'm in Santon, I can, I can do it to him and my role personally. It's a fearful moment. It's a reverential moment. It is ultra-sacred to me. I don't do it casually, nor I have it. I say to God, I honor you, God. But you are spirit. I cannot do it nebulously, abstractly. But I can do it to the one that represents you in my life. So I do it as unto the Lord, even though I'm doing it to men. And the principle of respect, I love you, I esteem you, I appreciate you. The principle of honor must drive the act. Otherwise, driving, obeying the act without the right attitude cancels the attendant blessing with the act. Okay? Now, let me go to the book of Malachi quickly. Um, some time ago, I don't know where it was. I remember doing a verse-by-verse exposé on the book of Malachi. Four chapters there. Last book in the Old Covenant. Four chapters. But what was amazing to me, you can find it in my notes, 
Do you know most of the admonitions in the book of Malachi are to priests? Priests represented in their context spiritual leadership. So the child of the Lord was to lead us. Late in the book it goes to the people. But if God cannot get the leadership right, he will not get the, the people right. So the first he deals with those that represent the people to him, which is the priest. When priests stand before God, they represent the people. When the priests stand before the people, they represent God to the people. So it's bi-directional. Okay? And this is what he says to the priests. Uh, and this, Although this is for leaders, the principle applies to us. Malachi 1 verse 6. By the way, what does the word Malachi mean? Those of you who remember or know? My messenger. My messenger. So Malachi embodies the principle of a message from the, from the Lord. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? So honor always goes to fathers or to parents, as it were, naturally and spiritually. If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, to you who, oh, priests, would despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? How does a priest despise the name of the Lord by dishonoring him? He says, if I'm your father, where is my honor? Where is my respect? God immediately draws reference to the offering. Watch. Verse 7. You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 8. When you present the blind, notice the quality of the sacrifices offered by the priests to God. You present the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Who would he be pleased with you? Or would you would you be received kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Now God takes the priest to task here. He says your offerings are deficient. They sick, they're blind, and they lay. You bring that to me? Your offerings tell me how you've despised me, you dishonor me. And he says, take that to your civic leaders. Take that to normal society, to governors, ruling in earthly context. Offer it to them and see if they will be happy. What is God saying? God is saying, sometimes people show more deference and respect to earthly structures of leadership than to spiritual arrangement of leadership in the house of God. For some people, we, we are more focused that we must respect our earthly bosses. We pull our weight there. We will not disappoint there. But there's no equal or even greater commensurate display of honor and respect to things spiritual. To things spiritual. So God is acting sarcastically. He says, oh, by the way, take the sick, the lame, the blind offerings. Give them to your earthly governors. Let's see if those guys will be happy with you. You want me just to accept anything? So God literally um, talks to these leaders. Now watch. Okay. I taught you. You've got to listen. This is the way the punchline is. Every offering is reflective of the offerer. What you give reflects you in its entirety. So if you're offering blind, sick, 
and lame offerings. Your offerings are symptomatic of your condition. God is talking to the Jews. God is saying to them, you are sick. You are blind. You are lame. Also, it denotes that the offering has got no prophetic capacity. I did a long teaching that was done in the weekend of our financial conference. One of the sessions on the prophetic nature of offerings. The prophetic nature of, of offerings. Now, the offerings were blind animals, depicting that there was no prophetic foresight in the offerer nor in the offering. The offerings were lame, and a lame animal cannot move. So these offerings provide no momentum, no movement to spiritual purposes. Remember Barnabas? He gave what? All the proceeds from the sale of his land. Remember? He gave that to Peter at his feet. And that not only fast-tracked apostolic work in the early church, because they needed finances to do the work, but the next movement was his. Barnabas' growth and essence into his apostleship was phenomenal between Acts 4 and Acts 14. You just read those 10 chapters, do a speed read, look out for how Barnabas speeches there. You would see the guy go from unknown to well-known as an apostle, and what activated it was an offering. The offering gave movement. So their offerings were lame, giving no movement to the spiritual positioning in Israel. Their offerings were blind, having no prophetic foresight. Remember the, the lady who, who gave the alabaster? Uh, not the alabaster. She broke the ointment, the nard that cost 11 months wages. Remember? Poured it on Jesus. What did Jesus say? She had prepared my body for burial. So the offering was prophetic in nature in that it prepared Jesus for the cross. Sometimes if, you're not, if your eyes are not open to the prophetic nature of what you're doing in terms of giving, Sometimes the giving is stifled, you don't sow as you should, because your eyes are shut as to its prophetic reality. But when your eyes are open to what does this thing truly represent in the realm of the spirit, it will enhance what you give. Okay? It will enhance what you give. And the offerings were sick, in other words, sick without strength. Okay, I won't go on to the next principle. Let me just wrap this thing up on honor and show you how serious it is to some of few passages. Um, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 30 and verse, or rather, let's go to 2020. Everyone say 2020. Don't forget the 2020 principle. Okay. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in the time of darkness. Now, just look at verse 27. The spirit of the, of the man is what? The lamp of the Lord. Say with me, the spirit of the, the spirit. Say it like this. My spirit is God's lamp. So my spirit searches out my whole being. In other words, things in my soul. If it's spirit, soul, body, the spirit is the lamp, shining on aspects of your darkened areas of your soul that need attention. So watch. This verse says, the spirit of the man is the lamp of the Lord. Right? Go back to... 20, verse 20. If, you, if scripture must interpret scripture, this says, if you curse father or mother, dishonor father or mother, what goes out? What is, the lamp is your spirit. The lamp goes out in a time of darkness so that you don't find your way. There's no light, there's no light, there's no direction. 
Now, the scripture also says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. I don't have time to decode this. If you want the full study, it's about one and a half hours teaching on this concept that the lamp in the man is his spirit illumined by the lamp of the word. Okay, you'll find this under the spiritual man. A whole long teaching there. If you're searching my website, look for spiritual man. And there's three or four sessions on this. If you ever come to curse, in other words, dishonor, you live in a period called darkness. In fact, the word, the, the time of darkness there relates to the pupil of the eye in the Hebrew. The capacity to, to see accurately. And the Bible says in John 12 verse 35, if my memory serves me correct, John 5 verse, John 12 35, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is, where he is going. Whoever walks in darkness is uncertain. So listen carefully. Uh, next year is going to be a very practical year for us. We're going to teach you aspects about success in the workplace, in the marketplace. But all linked to apostolic doctrine. You cannot be in darkness when trying to carve out a destiny and success for your life. You've got to make sure that my spirit is illumined, there's light there with the word of God, with the lamp of God. It, your steps will be measured by the light of God walking ahead for you. But the basis of it is, do not dishonor. If, you, if you're living in a culture of dishonor, you're living in a you're living in the possibility of your lamp, which should be the illuminating factor in your life, full with the word of God going out in a time of, of darkness. Proverbs 30 verse 17. 30 verse 17. Proverbs 30 17. Just one more. The eye that mocks father and scorns mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. And young eagles will uh, eat it. So if you despise King James, the eye that despises or holds in contempt, or mocks or derides father and mother, the ravens, right, of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. And there's no perspective. No eye means no perspective. No sight. It's bad to be in darkness and no sight in that. Okay? Really bad, really extremely bad um, combination. Now, remember, Ruth honored Naomi. All the expressions of giving were to honor her. And what did that do for her? It redeemed her from a whole lot going against her and reinstated her uh, in terms of a credible woman of tremendous status not just in Jerusalem, but also within the, the chronicles of Scripture. Because she's mentioned in Ruth, in Matthew chapter 2, in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth's success was built very, very strongly upon a principle of esteem and honor for Naomi. Okay? All of her gleanings in the field were at, as a direct result of how she esteemed and valued Watch the, the spiritual fathering role that Naomi played within her life. I constantly say this. The book of Ruth is not about a mother-in-law and a daughter. The book of Ruth is about a spiritual father, a 
his spiritual son. Why? Because Ruth 4.15 denotes Ruth as better than seven sons. The whole thing about Ruth is she models accuracy in sonship. She's not just a son. She's better than she's better than seven sons. If she's cast into the role of son, it casts Naomi into the role of into the role of father. Now, remember when they parted in Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech died, Marlon died, Kilion died. Elimelech is the father of, uh, of the boys, Naomi's husband. They had two sons, Marlon and Chilion. Father dies, Marlon and Kilion die. After a 10-year period living in Moab, being married to the boy, to the girls. In 10 years, they could not produce. Ruth was so barren after marriage for 10 years to one of the boys. I think it was Kilion, the eldest. Right? So barren. The land of Moab means what? What father? Moab means, the, the multiple meanings to Moab. One of the key meanings is, what father? Who needs a father? The spirit of Moab decries and discounts the need for spiritual parenting, spiritual accountability. Who was Balak, by the way, that employed Balaam to curse Israel? He was king of Moab. This was the authority of that spirit, the spirit that decries fathering. But when that spirit saw Israel and by tribes could not curse it. Okay? So, um, in Moab, because they left Jerusalem, they left Bethlehem of Judah, and they went to live in Moab. Remember? Went to live in Moab. So when you leave the house of bread, which is Bethlehem, and you relocate to live in an environment that discounts the need for spiritual fathering, what happens? Number one, Elimelech dies. Father dies. Number two, sons die. Marlon and Kilion died because the old culture and spirit of that land is against fathers and sons. Now Naomi is left with a decision. And the Bible says she heard that the Lord is visiting his people with bread in Bethlehem. Because that's what Bethlehem is. It's the house of bread. And all of this is in a time of famine. Great time of famine. So here's the point. Watch. How many people are left? Naomi, Ruth, and what kind of girl there? Oprah. Not Oprah. <laughs> Oprah. What does Oprah mean? Stiff neck. What is stiff nakedness? Stubbornness. If you say, hey, stiff naked guy, meaning stubborn, rebellious heart. What is Ruth? What's the meaning of Ruth? Someone worth seeing. Or from sight. Everyone say from sight. Say from seeing. When you think of Ruth, Think of a girl with a good eye. I'm going to draw it now to these verses in Proverbs. Think of a girl with a good eye. She can't see. Right? Her name is from sight, from seeing, and therefore the secondary meaning is she who is worth seeing. You are worth seeing when you can see. Point is, what did she see? So Naomi says to the girls, I am old. I cannot bear more sons for you girls and allow you to wait for them to grow up to, for you to marry them. She says this to them. So she says, go now to your mother's house. Even, what? She did not say go to your father's house. Even in a language, the spirit of Moab, the 
to really in effect. Later on, when Boaz entertained Ruth, remember he is Iron Ruth, he said to her, it has been reported all that you've done for your mother-in-law, and he said to her, how you've left your father's house. But Naomi didn't say that. Naomi said, you've left your, go back to your mother's house. Even, even the spirit of Moab started to affect the whole mindset of decrying the need for, for fathers. Then which of the girls went back? Opa, the Bible says, kissed her on the cheek, and she went, watch, she went back to Moab and its gods. Not just to Moab, so it was a spiritual decision. Moab and its gods. The god of Moab was Chemosh, evil deity, and the meaning of Chemosh means swift destroyer. How, how would you like to worship a god whose name means swift destroyer? Kill sons in the process. When they worshipped Chemosh, they would sacrifice young boys, killing Sancho. So, but here is what the Bible says about Ruth. But Ruth did what? Clung to Naomi. They clung to her. And she made the sevenfold um, covenantal oath. Where you go, I will go. Right? Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be dead. Everyone say covenantal pledge. Now, when they come into, watch, when they come into Bethlehem, they're on a journey now. Leaving Moab, we're to Bethlehem in the province of Judah. And Judah is the most accurate depiction of an apostolic spirit. Where is Bethlehem? Not in any other province, but in Judah. So it's the house of bread from an apostolic environment pushing the apostolic talk, and they go back there because the Lord is visiting that town, that context, that people. Right? They go back. When they come into the city, the Bible says, all the city was taken aback and aware of Naomi's return. Now let me just say this. I leave Durban for 10 years. And I come back. No one's going to be too worried. Right? I'm, not, I'm not this great guy. But Naomi's coming back and the Bible, the whole city is aware that they're returning. Tells me, before they left, there were people of status, influence, high rank. And what she says immediately, Naomi, to everybody, do not call me Naomi, but call me who? Mara, which means what? Bitter. And she says this, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. It wasn't the Lord, it was Elimelech's decisions. A husband. Sometimes you blame God for earthly decisions, right? And you know what? Naomi means what? Good, pleasant, agreeable. When she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She's saying, don't call me good, don't call me agreeable, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Call me a lady that got the worst end of God's stick. I've been through much. I've lost husband. I've lost firstborn son. I've lost secondborn son. I've even lost a specific daughter in law I've lost much. I've, I've, I've come from this wealthy woman and I'm now bereft as a pauper. I, don't, I can't even go back to the land I own. Right? I've been with the mercy of a Leverite law applying in Judah at the time. Do not call me Mara. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now, my point is this what is Naomi seeing? <coughs> what is Ruth seeing when she sees Naomi? 
Because Naomi's confession is, I am Mara. It takes prophetic sight to look beyond the humanity of a leader and to focus in on the kernel of divinity within the person present. Because left to your natural sight, there are a whole lot of freckles and frighties you're going to see, deficiencies in his makeup and his character that might cause you not to follow and follow the way of Oprah, Oprah and go back to, to Moab. This girl saw something Oprah did not. Because her name means from sight. But everything external to Naomi is only bitter. How can I follow someone who lost husband, someone who lost two boys? How can I follow you? Even by your own confession, you are bitter, but I still cling. Because I see a resident bothering capacity in you. I see in you. Your God's going to be my God. Your people, I don't even know who they are, are going to come into a new sphere of relationship. And thank God she did. Because did not she access the Leverite principle? Right? I won't explain it to take too much time. Right? And, and listen, Opa, brother uh, Ruth, went from a beggar to a multi-million heiress in approximately seven months from that point. She went from the inability to conceive a child in ten months in an environment that despises fathers and sons, and in a moment, once married to Boaz, she conceives Obi. From being unable to conceive a son, she doesn't just now bear a son, but she bears a significant one. Because he becomes the father of Jesse, and he becomes the father of David. Right? Barrenness is broken in her life. She owns the field that she once begged in. You know what was key? I, I, you know, I, I really want to implore this upon you. What was key in Ruth? She was ruthless. Yeah. Ruthless obedience. Yeah. Just let her was in it for the long haul. Heart and soul. Okay. And she constantly bore her grain from bleeding every day to the back to Naomi and ministered to her. Everyone say honor. Okay, there are many other principles in Ruth. I don't want to go into that right now. But I want to stress honor. The centurion who did not permit Jesus to come into his house, but just said to him, don't come. Stand here and speak the word. My son at home will be, will be healed. What did Jesus say? I have not seen so much faith. Jesus equated the man's honor to his faith. When you have honor in place, your faith has room to be exercised and to grow in it. This honor heals faith. So I want to encourage you. If you want your seeds to come to fullest harvest, ensure that every seed you sow is done within the context of great honor. Take a step back if you would. Assess your mind. Am I doing it simply to be politically correct? Am I just doing it because I don't want to be seen to be the one not doing it? Is my gift an expression of me? Or am I offering lame, blind, and sick animals? Am I despising the, the, the altar or the table of the Lord? Is my gift an expression of the totality of my whole heart? Do you know Elisha refused Naaman's offering? Remember? Why? Because it wasn't reflective of a heart totally given to the Lord. Because he said to him, pray for me. Because when I go back to Assyria, 
and my master king leans on my staff in the worship of Rimon, the Assyrian god, pray that your God be merciful to you. Elisha refused the man's offering because the offering would not be a reflection of his heart given to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Gehazi, you by greed and covetousness, ran after him, remember? And without Elisha's knowledge, extracted the funds by fraud. Right? And what he, he was with it as well. With leprosy. My point being, Elisha refused to accept an offering if the offering was not completely honoring of the Lord. Honor must, must, must reflect all offerings. And you will see how your seed will be blessed by the Lord in all that you do. Amen? You receive this word today. Make sure. If I can teach all young people one thing, if you can learn the honor principle, you are set for life. Learn the honor principle quickly. Honor all leadership. Honor all eldership. Honor your mother, your father, your spiritual mother, spiritual father. Honor all expressions of, of, of leadership that God has placed over you and see how the Lord will direct you. I'm nowhere near where I thought we would be today. But we leave that for another time. Amen. I think the Lord has spoken sufficiently. Amen. Come on, are you going to honor? Amen. Amen. I'm trying to teach you things that will ensure your well-being for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your, for your word to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name that you would teach us every time we give to you, that every gift becomes expressive of all that you made us to be. Let there never be a disconnect between our giving and who we are, why we function. I ask now, God, that every time this congregation sows seed of any kind, with its first roots, tithes, offerings, love gifts, alms giving to the poor, giving to people that are in serious need of help, whatever the gift, I pray it will be laced by the spirit of honor to those to whom we are giving. You even said the least among us, we must bestow the greater honor. So we don't only embrace this honor principle to those over us, but also to those alongside us and those. Uh, that are in serious need. Let every gift be an expression of the honor principle within our lives. Our greatest desire is to honor you. You said in your word, Samuel, that them that honor you, you will honor them. So Father, I thank you, O oh God, that you will enhance every seed song. We want to recommit to our, our esteem for your house and for your purposes in the house, for the word of the Lord. Let us stairway link our private houses to the house of the Lord. Let us let there be a going up of prioritization um, for the house of the Lord within our lives. For in and through the house is your will and purpose expressed. And now I bless your people, every family represent, even those not present for various reasons. We bless your house, Lord. Bless every person in this house. Thank you, O oh God, that things will go well with us. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord crown all your efforts with good success. And may the Lord, your God, give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.